Here is another powerful message from New Vision Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. To hear the rest of this series and others, join us at newvisionlife.com. Good to see all of you this morning. I know if you guys are like me, it's been a tough week. Just a lot of heaviness with all of the destruction with the storms that uh, rolled through here last week in Nashville and then on up into Cookville. Yesterday, it was really neat to see uh, how many of you guys showed up and brought supplies uh, that were able to take up to Cookville yesterday. I appreciate Dean and Shannon Everhart and all they did uh, to get that ready. Paul Cook letting us use his his, uh, his truck. It was, it was pretty neat just to, to see that, see how you guys uh, came out. So I, I appreciate that. There'll be more things as to Dakota said we'll be involved in uh, going forward. Now today we're continuing on in Romans. Uh, let me start this way. I think the Bible is the greatest book in the history of the world. You with me on that? I'm pretty sure that Romans is the greatest book in the greatest book in the history of the world. I'm not so sure that, uh, in, in fact I think I am sure, I think Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the greatest book ever written. And I believe Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is the greatest book, or excuse me, man, it's my fourth time to do this. I think Romans 8.1 is the greatest verse in the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the greatest book ever written. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So it's got to be great, right? What we're looking at today. This is so amazing. And uh, I, I would tell you that uh, what we're about to look at in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1, is a, is a passage that really saved my sanity. The principles that we're going to talk about today have been life-changing for me. And I don't know about you. They, they have been life-changing for me. You know, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Braveheart. Any Braveheart fans here? Yeah. How can you not like Braveheart? But, but I think every, whether you like Braveheart or not, everybody would agree that just kind of this... The pinnacle moment in in the movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson plays William Wallace. Um, We're not going to show the clip, but let's look at a little Mel here. You guys, you can't get enough of that. I wanted to paint my face blue today. But this is where uh, he he makes this great speech. Mel Gibson makes this great speech there in front of the Scottish army, and he's challenging them to take the battlefield and and fight against against England, uh, an army that was uh, superior to theirs. And uh, they said, no. We'll run, and, and, and because we'll run, we'll at least live. And then in two sentences, what Wallace says, it makes me want to run through a wall. He says, fight, and you may die. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? just one chance to come back here to this battlefield and tell our enemies that they may take our land, but they will never take our freedom, right? Freedom. And, and, and people just erupt and they, they take the battlefield and, and, and I'm running through the den, like high-fiving my wife, <laughs> like freedom. I don't I don't care where you are, you want a little bit more of it than what you have. All of us would love to be freer than we are right now, free from anxiety and guilt and shame and discouragement and just all kinds of things from coronavirus to the stock market to just just fear, 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 but we want freedom, freedom, freedom. And so where, where does it come from? This is what I love about Romans. 
And really starting from this point on, what Paul is saying in, in Romans, he's saying that there are so many implications or benefits of the gospel. It's a big disservice to an understanding of the gospel to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is just about missing hell and making heaven. It affects every single area of our life. And Paul says if, if you properly understand the gospel, it will bring so much freedom to your life. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I think is maybe one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. And Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when he says, therefore, again, when you study the Bible, we have to remember when Paul was writing, he wasn't, wasn't using chapter headings or verses. It was just this, under the inspiration of the Lord, it's just this stream of consciousness. He's writing one, one unified book. And so in this section, he is looking back on what he just wrote in Romans chapter 7. And if you remember, if you were with us in, in Romans chapter 7, it's a, it's a difficult chapter because Paul's talking about his struggle as a believer, his struggle with sin. It's in Romans chapter 7 that Paul says, uh, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I know I should do, those things I, I, I don't do. Or, I, or the things that I should do, uh, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, I do. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this bondage of sin? And then he goes on to say, thanks be to Christ. And so he, when he begins in Romans 8, what he's really saying is, is based on how kind of I feel about myself with this struggle that I have as a believer with sin, I should be anticipating payment or judgment. But then he flips the script and he tells us there is now no condemnation. What is condemnation? Condemnation has to do with punishment. It has to do with, with, a, with a payment, that's something that, that we owe, that, that, that is due. It's a sentence that we have hanging over our heads because of mistakes that we have made in our life. And Paul says now there is no condemnation. There's none of it for those who are very important preposition in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life. When he says the law of the Spirit, he's saying there's a new operating system in the life of a believer it is the Holy Spirit of God who comes to dwell inside of a believer, and that changes things, and it brings freedom. It brings, brings power because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, in other words, gives you the ability to walk in obedience like you never have before, who gives you the ability to have levels of freedom that you've never had before. Through the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What he's saying there is you and I as believers, and again, I'm not assuming that everybody here is a believer. Do you understand that? But he's saying for those who are in Christ, that sin has no more jurisdiction over you. The enemy has no more jurisdiction over you because of who you are in Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, for the law was powerless to do this. In other words, the commandments, that the commandments were never intended to save you. The commandments were intended to show you that you needed a Savior because you could not keep them. Does that make sense? We've talked about that a lot. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. What does he mean when he says the law was weakened by the flesh? It is just this nature, this, this nature that we have that, that this has this propensity to sin and to disobey God. And all of us in this room are guilty. Would you agree with that about yourself? The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Do you agree? And so it is weakened by the flesh. We weren't able to keep the commandments of, of, of the law. But God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is very important. I mean, it doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he, he came as a human being, the God-man. And he stepped into our situation. And he does what none of us were able to do. He keeps God's righteous commandments. He lives this holy life, which we were never able to live. It says... Also, he comes to be a, what does the scripture say? Uh, a sin offering. So not only does he live righteously, but he dies as this full payment for our sin debt. He's a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, when I was a kid, in my neighborhood, we used to play this game called King of the Hill. Any of you ever play that game? I was just mumbling. Yeah. I mean, and I've been saying it all weekend. And like kids, you can tell. Kids today are like, that's the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. We didn't have video games in. Can I going to be honest? So you had to you had to create your own fun. So in my neighborhood, we had we had a little little hill in this guy's backyard, and so one of the guys would get up on the hill, and then we'd just run up there, and whoever could knock him over, knock him down, then you were the king of the hill until somebody come up came up and knocked you over, and you're thinking, man, it was tough being a kid. Yeah, well, it was king of the hill. But really, in in some ways, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying when Jesus Christ came. Satan, sin, death, that was king of the hill. That's what dominated life. But Jesus comes, and now because of what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, he is now king of the hill. And that freedom really is passed on to, to all of us. So here's what I want to do uh, for the next few minutes. I want to ask five questions today. And, like, if, if, if you're... Uh, one of those folks who've been in church your whole life, you should ne- a preacher should never have as his five points, five questions. Like that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I'm going to do that today. I'm going to ask five questions because I think we've all got to answer these questions. I would call these the questions of freedom. And in other words, I, I would make this statement, I'm not sure that you can really experience the freedom to the level that God would want you to, to live in without being able to answer these, these five questions. And so uh, here they are. And, 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 and by the way, these are just questions that, in my own words, you, you probably would never ask a question exactly like this. Your wording might be different. But my guess is you've probably thought of questions similar. All right? So the first question, let me set up the first question. I know so many people in the church... So many believers, I, I believe, that, that just have a hard time of, of really accepting the fact that they are completely forgiven in Christ. They just have such a hard time with that, believing that all of their past, all of their mistakes, and all of their failures is really gone. I mean, it sounds good, but most people I know would say, you know what, I, I just don't know about that. So here's a question, right, to wrestle with. It's the first question of freedom. Here it is. Would God punish Christ and me for the same sin? I think it's a question you have to wrestle with. I know it's not the easiest question, but would it make sense for God to punish Christ and me for the same sin? Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe believe that Jesus Christ was crucified because of the sin debt of mankind? I do. So does it make sense that he'd punish both of us? Here's the answer to this. The answer is no. Christ was condemned so I could be free. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. There is now now, uh, no more condemnation because those who are in Christ Jesus. So I can live completely free because Jesus was fully condemned. That's the message of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8.1. Now this verse doesn't say, listen, listen, listen. This verse doesn't say that there are, are no mistakes. It says there is no condemnation. This verse doesn't say there are no failures in the life of a believer. It says no I'm going to come back to this about four times. It'll be good to go ahead and get it. We'll, it'll move a whole lot faster. It says no condemnation. 
It doesn't even say that there's no sins in the life of a believer. It says there's no condemnations because Christians do fail, right? Christians do make mistakes. Christians do sin. Abraham, the father of faith, lied about his wife multiple times. David committed adultery and even murder. Simon Peter tried to kill a man. And you say, well, I don't see that in my Bible. I didn't see Simon Peter try to kill a man. I, I saw that he did uh, cut a man's ear off. You think that's what he was aiming at? <laughs> Let me just snip that ear. <laughs> no. <laughs> he came to take his rabbi. He was trying to kill him. So, you see... Now, it doesn't mean that these people didn't suffer consequences. In the life of a believer, will we suffer consequences for sin? Sure, but what Paul says in Romans 8.1, which is a battle cry of freedom, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm looking at you as you're looking at me. And most people, whenever you teach on, anytime I've ever taught on Romans 8.1, most people in the church still aren't buying it. No. Most people aren't. And to be honest, I, I can tell by the look on your face whether you're buying it or not. Now, some of you are starting to smile and look spiritual. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Most people don't. But let, me, let, me, let me ask. Here's what Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers and theologians of all time, said about Romans 8.1. He said, God would be unjust. God would be unjust to punish both Christ and the believer for the same sin. That's a brilliant statement, isn't it? He said, God would be unjust to punish Christ and then us for the same sin. Uh, my wife and I, we struggle in, a, in, in this area in our marriage. I like, to, I like to sleep at about 65 degrees. Not an exaggeration. She likes to sleep at about 75 degrees. We got a, some of you are looking, that's us. We have a 10-degree variance in temperature, which is a big deal. And so I'm always dropping it down. She's always bumping it back up. I have a huge fan beside the bed there, and I have a fan above. And so, you know, I, I, and, and she has, now she's just got like eight blankets. And so anyways, that's how we sort of accommodate it. But wonder if I got a call from Murfreesboro Electric Department and said, hey, uh, Brady Cooper, yeah, um, listen, we, we talked to your wife, and we realized it's you that is running your electric bill up. So we're going we're gonna to need to exact payment for, from you for this uh, expensive electric bill for last month. So the question I would ask, because I know my wife writes all the bills, she pays the bills. I say, uh, has, has Amy paid? Well, yeah, she paid, but you're the one who ran it up, so we're going we're gonna to need payment from you too. I'm like, no, I'm not paying you twice. Does that make sense? Well, this is just basic economics here. This may be why you're having trouble with your finances. If you're paying <laughs> bills twice, this is, like, this is costing you guys. Listen, no, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, well, well she's already paid it. I'm not paying it again for something she's already paid. Yet I see so many people in the church doing that with guilt and, and shame, just never coming to, to grips with the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, that, that what Jesus paid, he paid in full, and God wouldn't charge him and me for the same sin. So it begins to allow me to move into a level of freedom. Let me push into this a little further because I've been nosy. You know, I, I think there are a lot of folks who believe this. They're willing to believe that Jesus paid for all of their sins up to the point in time that they put their faith and trust in Christ, but everything going forward, they're kind of on their own. Now, they wouldn't say it that way, but I've talked to just dozens and dozens of people. Scott, you may have encountered the same thing. They, they, they are, are willing to believe that Jesus paid for their past sins, but now the sin that I committed just, just today, I, I'm sort of on my own, and, and so I feel so much doubt and so much, so much guilt about that. Now, let me ask you this question. How many sins had you committed when Jesus Christ died on the cross? 
It was 2,000 years ago. Let's run the numbers. It's in a trick question. I remember the first time somebody taught me this, it was, it was liberating for me. I was like, man, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. How many sins had you committed when Jesus died on the cross? None. You feel like it's a trick question. It's not. So that means all of your sins were in the future. So what is the point? Jesus paid for all of your sins if you're in Christ. He hasn't paid for any of them. So let me just get, let me just get radical with you here today. Because any, any, anytime anybody is preaching on grace, it always, if it doesn't seem too good to be true, it's not grace. It's some mixture of legalism, right? You see that? Listen, Jesus has, his death paid for sins that you haven't even committed yet. And to that, this is where people pull back, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you, mean, you mean Jesus has already paid for sins that I haven't even committed? You can't te- teach people that because if you teach people that, they'll take advantage of, of, of God's grace. No, in fact, in fact, here's what might happen. If you really understood that, and it's true, by the way, whether you believe it or not, it's true. It will cause you to fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. It will cause you to move into a level of freedom that you've never been in before. My grandson, I've told you I have a grandson uh, a lot. Get over it. Um, so he's, uh, this is the struggle that we're going through right now in our relationship. He comes here on Tuesday, Thursday. He's got a class. He comes here on Tuesday, Thursday. And uh, he's all of a sudden, like he doesn't, when he sees me in the hall, he like looks away. He's like, he's got that cool face like, oh, no, there's Pop. Don't look at him. And I'll call his name, and he'll just look down because he wants to be cool in front of his friends. He's not even three yet. I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> and it has, I mean, can I just be vulnerable? It's bothered me. I'm like, man, I thought I had a few extra years, but I'm like, man, um, you know. And so uh, Thursday, this is such a good, Thursday, I, was out, I came down, I was out in the foyer. He was coming out with his class out of the sanctuary, and he saw me. He was in line, you know. He saw me, and he went, pop, 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 pop. And now, for me, that was a big deal because that's what I do every time I see him. When he comes to the house, I say, Bradford, pow, pow, pow. That's just, I, you think that's cheesy? I don't care. I'm my granddad. <laughs> You'll do goofy things too. But, but that was his way of saying, you know what, that's our thing. I love you. And, and I, went, I went to my office and I called my wife and said, he gave me the pow, pow, pow. It was big. It was a big moment. Why? Because he wanted to, not because he had to. And isn't that what we love as a parent? But think about this, in our relationship with Christ, that we obey him because we love him for who he is and what he's done, not because we're under some sort of obligation to do that. You see, that may have been how you've grown up. You've grown up just under some sort of obligation and some sort of legalism, and you're, you came to worship on Sunday because that's what you were supposed to do, and God was, was, was taking your role, and if you didn't show up, he was going to punish you and be mad instead of just falling deeply in love with him because of what he's done. You see, that's what freedom will do. Here's a second question. I struggled with this for so many years. Does God really only love me when I'm like Christ? You might have phrased the question up differently. Does God just love me when I behave? Because that's just what I thought, and I grew up in the church. I thought God really only loved me when I really behaved spiritually, right? When I had my quiet time, when I, when I really had it dialed in spiritually. My struggle is most of the time I didn't have it dialed in spiritually. It was sort of up and down. And so I was just, that's how I live my life. And, and so, so let me ask you the question again, and you don't have to answer it out loud, but I want you to wrestle with it. Does God only love me when I'm like Christ? Well, if we go back and look at Romans 8.1, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
So the answer to that is no. God doesn't love me because I'm like Christ. He loves me because I'm in Christ. Do you understand the difference? That I'm, that I'm grafted in, that I'm adopted, that I'm his son, Colossians 3.3, 3, for I died to trusting in myself and my life is now hidden with God in Christ. Let me just tell you what this, this means. This means God is as pleased with you on your worst day as he was with Jesus when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Is that amazing? Now, most people don't believe that because we just, we, we just believe that God is only passionate and, and loves us when we obeyed, and that leads to a couple traps in the Christian life that keeps people stuck. The first trap is the performance trap. Some of you are stuck in the performance trap right now, and you don't even know it. You're working, you're serving, everything you do is, 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 is in some ways, it's a performance for, for God to say, I'm pleased with you. And you, you're hoping against hope that you've done enough, but you never know when you've done enough. And you, you see, here's the thing about the performance trap. It just ends bad. You just get worn out. And sometimes I hear that in the church. People just, I'm just, I'm just burned out. I'm just burned out on church. I'll hear that a lot from people. I'm just burned out on church. And you know what I know when they say that? They've been on the performance trap. Because I was on the performance trap. It's like a spiritual treadmill, and you're just exhausted, and you're laboring for God's love instead of understanding the essence of the gospel that he has unconditional love for us. And that he doesn't love me because I'm like Christ. He loves me because I'm in Christ. Right? You see. Now, the second trap is the, the freedom trap. Or, or excuse me. The second trap is the pretending trap. I'm sorry. Performance trap, pretending trap. The pretending trap is this. It's, it's kind of just pretending everything's okay in our life, that we have it all dialed in. And here's what I know about you because I know it about me. None of us in here today, everything's okay. I mean, we, we, we kind of come in here today, we look good, we, you know, dressed up a little bit. We come in, we say the right things, we sing songs. Some of us even raised our hand dur during worship, so we, we got, none of us are, are, are okay. We've all got stuff going on in our life. But we've learned to pretend. And so that's the pretending trap. And one of our greatest fears, listen to this, one of our greatest fears is being exposed. One of our greatest fears is that somebody, perhaps from our past, would call out in maybe even a public way and expose us from something from our past. I lived that way for years. It's one of, the, one of the reasons why I didn't want to come back here in Murfreesboro to be a pastor because I grew up here. I went to high school here. I've told you this over and over again, that, that people might stand up and share something from 1987 in the first service. One of my buddies, uh, Mike Webb, he's sitting right over here. He raised his hand like he said, I know. He was laughing like, I could do that. No, you're not. <laughs> Don't allow you to speak. But that used to hold me back. But you know where I am now? Here, here's where I am now. You could call something out, some shameful act from my past. You could call it out. But let me tell you something. He already knows about it. He's already forgiven me from that. He's already covered me from that, and he's changing me from that. Is that not good news? I don't have to pretend anymore. Listen, I don't have it all figured out. Have I made mistakes? Yes. Call those things. You ever told on somebody as a kid? Ever told on somebody from a kid? And somebody already said, yeah, we already knew that. It's just like this arm's like, oh, man. I wanted, to, I wanted to break that story, right? He already knows. He's chosen to forgive, and he's in the process of changing you. I don't have to pretend any longer, and that is so freeing. Isn't that freeing? To be done with the performance trap and the pretending trap is, is a powerful, powerful truth. I love the movie, Old Brother, Where Art Thou? You ever seen that, you seen that movie? That's no, it. It's a funny movie. Now, I always have to say this. because Every time I mention a movie, people say, we rented that on Sunday night, got the family around and watched it. It had some problems in it, Pastor Brad. I can't believe you watched that. I'm not telling you to watch this for your discipleship. We're not, we didn't have our quiet time. We watched Old Brother, Where Art Thou? You said it. No. 
I just think it's a funny movie, man. And, and so George Clooney and two of his buddies, they've uh, escaped from uh, a work camp in Mississippi, so they're on the run looking for uh, where they think is some buried treasure, and they're up against a, a time crunch, and so they're hid, hid out, hidden out in the swamp, and, and they're out in this, this swamp, and all of a sudden they start hearing music. Do you know the scene if you've seen the movie? And, and, and people start walking in these white robes. They're walking down to a river to be, to be baptized, and one of his buddies, the two guys with him, Delmar, there's Delmar there, he just gets caught up in the moment, man. This criminal, he gets caught up in the moment. He just goes down to the river, gets in, in front of the baptismal line, just gets, just gets baptized. I love this movie. And uh, old Delmar comes up out of the water. That's how he looks, comes up out of the water. And, and he says his two buddies that are on the shore, he says, the preacher done said, I, I, I've been saved. I've been, I've been washed clean from all my sins. He says, even at Piggly Wiggly, I knocked over in Yazoo City. And George Clooney looks at him and said, Delmar, I thought you said you were innocent of those charges. He said, well, I lied. But I've been forgiven of that too. <laughs> it's like, I'm not telling you that that movie is completely theologically accurate in every way. It's, it's a good movie, but it, it does speak to the freedom that we all that we all desperately want. Would God punish me and Christ for the same sin? The answer to that is no. Does God really only love me when I'm like Christ? No. He loves me because I'm in Christ. Now, here's an important question. Number three, it's the third question. I think these are the questions that we have to wrestle with if we're going to truly be free. How can I really know I'm forgiven? Because we say this, we say this around here a lot. Now, listen, this is very important. This is a very important distinction. Salvation, forgiveness, I'm using those terms maybe a little bit interchangeably, is available for all, but it's not automatic. Do you understand that? It's not the default position of every person that's been born. We have to be born again. Very, very different. But how, so here's the question it begs, how do I know I'm forgiven? Is that a good question? Most of the time, now please listen, people have been critical of, of this, and, and I'm trying to make you think, most of the time, and I'm not saying this is wrong, most of the time what we do is we point back to a period in time, a, a decision we made in, in the past where we trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, and I'm not denying that. I think that has to happen. But I think there's also another way that we can answer that, answer that question that's even a more recent or more current way that can give us great assurance, which would give us great freedom in our lives. So how can I know I'm forgiven? Look at verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. This is very important. He's saying that change is the natural complement of forgiveness. That's what he's saying. If you've been born again, the Holy Spirit is alive within you, which is breathing life into your body, that you're able to overcome sin areas that you've never had before, that you're beginning to live life differently because the Spirit is alive and working within you. Change is the natural complement of forgiveness. Do you see that? Where, where there is true forgiveness, a person's truly born again, here's one thing you will always see. You will always start to see change in their life, Right? may be incremental and slow at first, but there will always be change there because that's a work of the Spirit. So forgiveness means not just I'm released from the penalty of sin. I think we think about that a lot in the church, and I think we have that. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. We would agree with that, right? But, but forgiveness also means that I've been released from the power of sin because when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, that power is now made manifest to us through the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to start overcoming sin. So we're also released from the power of sin. And what will you see? You'll begin to see change. I know I have received forgiveness from Christ and I, because I'm being changed by Christ. You'll see miracles in the New Testament. 
And many times these miracles that Jesus performs, are they, they're showing his divinity, but they're also uh, really illustrations of salvation. In three of the gospel accounts, there's a story of the paralytic. Remember his story? His friends bring him to Jesus. They get there late. It's crowded. They have to lower him through the roof, and they drop him down. Could you nod? You've read the You've seen that? Yeah. So they lower him down to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says to him first, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, his buddies are like, he can't walk. That's why we lowered him down in front of you. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, now get up, take your mat, and walk. In many ways, that's a picture of salvation. When our sins are forgiven, we start to begin to walk spiritually. We start to begin to live life differently. We have different convictions, uh, conviction of sin that never bothered us before. We're beginning to have some new desires in our life. Uh, It doesn't mean that we're living it out perfectly, but we're starting to see some change. And you'll even notice some people around you sometimes asking questions about you because you're responding and reacting different. You're, You're all of a sudden... Uh, concerned about people who don't know Christ. Uh, uh, I, I have a buddy who has recently come to faith in Christ. He, he, was, he was telling me just a couple days ago, he was telling me about guys that he's working with, that he's praying for, and he's engaging them with conversations about Christ. Where does that come from? People don't do that naturally unless they've been changed, you see? And so that's a great evidence of the gospel. Let me just tell you this. The gospel message is not stop sinning. That's what I thought it was for most of my life. I thought it was, hey, stop sinning. That's not the gospel. The gospel message is, behold, the love, the grace, the acceptance, and the power of this risen Christ. And when you trust him, he will give you the power to start walking in victory in ways you've never had before. But if I had to summarize it, how how, how do you know that your sins are forgiven? I would say this way, no change, no Jesus. Listen, today, if, if, if you can't look to just, just one thing in your life that, that is different because of the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, then I would say this, please be born again. Because when you're truly forgiven, change begins to happen. You see, some people say, well, I know I'm in Christ because I'm in church. Listen, you can be in church and not be in Christ. But you, you can't be in Christ and not have a desire to, in many ways, be the church. Does that make sense? <laughs> can't happen, right? So is, is that there? Listen. A couple weeks ago, I got a cold. I'm a, I'm a sissy, to be honest with you. My wife had the cold. She never complained. I got the cold. I said, I think it's the flu. That's why I think every cold is a flu. She said, it's not the flu. It is. My throat hurts. I, and so I'm starting. She says, you know, it's, it's, just a little, it's, a, it's a little virus. You have a cold. You're not running a fever. You have a little cold. Not the coronavirus. I'm, it was a while back. I had a cold. And... Um, but isn't it amazing that we, we can be aware of a small cold virus that's in our body? We can be aware of it, right? I mean, you, you know when you're starting to come down with a cold, don't you? I mean, your throat gets scratchy, you start to get a little stopped up, you immediately know something's going on within me, right? Wouldn't it make sense if the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, was alive within you, you'd be aware of that? I think we would, right? And Paul, Paul is really saying, that's how I know I'm forgiven because Christ is alive within me. So here's a great question. How is my life different today in just one way? Because of the Spirit of God's inside of me. And that should give us great assurance and great freedom in our life. Or should cause us to, to trust Christ and enter into a relationship with him. Now, let's look, at the, let's look at the fourth question. Are you guys doing okay? I got four minutes. Can you hang in? This is so important 
And uh, we miss this so, so often, and, and it's really one of the reasons why so many believers don't live in the power that God has for them. It's, for the, it's, it's, it's not being able to answer this question. Here it is. What is the greatest damage caused by sin? What is the greatest damage caused by sin? Now, these are my words. I think many times we think the greatest damage caused by sin is how it affects me or how it affects my family, how it affects others, or its physical effects on my life. That's not the greatest damage caused by sin. Look, look what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, just on down. Paul says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also, that's the Holy Spirit of God, will also start to give life to your mortal bodies. That's power. That's a power surge. That is the Holy Spirit's power to begin to give you victory and breakthrough in your life, to give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives within you. You see, many times... When, when someone is in sin, we'll say this, well, what I'm doing is not that big a deal. It's not hurting anyone. I'll hear people say this as they relate to pornography. It's not that big a deal. It's just something I do, and it's not hurting anyone. This is, this is you see, you, you haven't understood the greatest damage of sin. The greatest damage of sin is this, is understanding that it grieves the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you. Look at this. Freedom occurs, watch this, freedom occurs when we realize the greatest damage of sin is grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, and it can be grieved. So one of the reasons why, why we stay stuck is we don't understand that. And in our life, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And, and sometimes we'll say, well, that's just, a, that's just sort of, we, we talk about small compromise. That's just like a small deal. That's not like a big deal. Like we think there's, there's sort of big sins and there's kind of small sins. You with me? I'm running out of time. You understand that? There's big stuff, you know, right? You know, like adultery, like, like that's big stuff. Or like, like you, you steal, that's like a big, big stuff. But like gossip's like, like, like low-end stuff, like not that big a deal. But the result of both of them is the same. What are both of them doing? Both of them are grieving the Holy Spirit. And so you see, when you understand, and, and, and why is this a big deal? Is God mad? No, no, no. But you'll never experience God's power in your life when the Holy Spirit of God is grieved to its full extent, which will bring freedom in your life. Does that make sense? So here we go. Let's look at the fifth and final one. Let's recap. I want to see how you're doing with these. Let's look at all five of them just really quickly. I've got one minute and 47 seconds. Would God punish Christ and me for the same sin? Does God really only love me when I'm like Christ? Loves me because I'm in Christ, right? How can I really know I'm forgiven? Evidence of the Holy Spirit alive within me. What is the greatest damage caused by sin? Grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, the last question is, is this. What is the greatest irony in life? What is the greatest irony in life? I think the greatest irony in life is this. The total surrender always brings freedom. It's the hardest thing for us to understand. Total surrender. Total surrender brings freedom. Sometimes I'll see people uh, out and I'll say, Preacher, we're going to get back in church this year. And uh, we're going to get some things squared away. And, what, and I'm, I'm glad for that. But let me tell you something. Do you understand that Jesus never came to be a part of your life? Do you understand that? That's hard for people, especially in the South, to get. People never, Jesus, Jesus never came to be a part of your life. Jesus always came to be your life. Do you understand the difference? And if you just want Jesus to be a part of your life, that's not total surrender. You'll never have freedom. The greatest irony in life, the greatest irony in life is freedom is always a result of total surrender. I, uh, in 10th grade, took driver's ed. How many of you took driver's ed? Remember that? 
Coach Palmer Jones was my driver's ed teacher. How do I know? Because he lives one block away from me. And uh, sometimes Amy and I are out walking, and I, I see him out. He's retired now, but he laughs, and he, he does that. Pumping the brakes. <laughs> because, because, you know what, he, he was my freshman basketball coach. He, he never put me in. Anyways, that's a whole other deal. But, but he, he, he would joke around, joke around with me, and sometimes we'd be driving, and he'd just hit them. He'd hit the brakes. It was his way of saying, you know what, hey, anytime I want to stop you, I, I can stop you. He's always pumping the brakes. Sometimes that got us out of a tight spot. Sometimes that was good. And you say, well, what, what's the point? I'm not so sure if that isn't how we live our life. We pump the brakes. Like, you're here today, and you've always stopped short of total surrender to Christ. Pump the brake. It's not that you don't believe. It's, it's not that you haven't seen evidence in other people's life that God's alive. But you know what? For you, it's, it's just a pumping of the brake. Total surrender means... I'm not in control, and I have to give that over to someone else. It means trusting Christ in Christ alone for my standing with God. Well, I want to trust in what I've done. Well, listen, if your standing, if your performance could have, could, have, could have granted you presence into God's kingdom, why in the world did he send his son? That doesn't make any sense. But see, for some of you, it's been just pumping the brakes. You've never surrendered to him. That could change today. Some of you as believers, listen, some of you as believers, we still pump the brakes sometimes, don't we? Because we know there's somebody in our life that we need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, but we pump the brakes. We know we need to surrender our children to God's will for their life, but we think we have a better plan than God has, so we pump the brakes. Morally, we know what God's standards are, but you know what? We have other areas of our life where we're walking in obedience. You know, one area, you know, not that big. Pump the brakes. Here's what you don't know. The irony, the greatest irony in life is the freedom that you always have longed for is always a byproduct of surrender. Finances, whoa. Pump the brakes. I wonder today, all across this place, you bow your head with me. J.D. Greer says it this way. It's a great statement. There's only one deal Christ will make. His righteousness and his resurrection power for your total surrender. What does that look like today? Surrender. To give all of who you are to all of who he is. And why are you pumping the brakes? Some of you listen today. You have never trusted Christ and Christ alone. He's been a part of your life, but he's never been your life. Anytime he's wanted control, you've pumped the brakes. Would you surrender to him today? Would you trust him and him alone as your Savior and Lord? Others of you as believers, there are just pockets of resistance. There are areas where you've just been pumping the brakes in your marriage with your children, in a dating relationship. And today, you'd say, Jesus, I understand that freedom and surrender are inseparable. Foot off the pedal. I'm yours. Father, thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for this amazing verse.
that saved my sanity. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we can be completely free because you were totally condemned in our place. Lord, help us, grant us the grace to step into the freedom that is ours in Christ. Lord, I pray for those today who have never trusted you, folks here today who have, who have never surrendered to you as Savior and Lord, Lord, that your Spirit is drawing them even today to you. And Lord, they could leave this place free because for the first time in their life, they're accepting this gift of grace. They could never earn, never deserve. That's the point. And it would springboard them into a life of loving you, surrendering more and more to your Holy Spirit, and greater and greater levels of freedom. Lord, I pray for that today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we'd like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. We meet at 820, 940, and 11 a.m. If you would like more information or would like to watch or listen to more of our services, please visit us online at newvisionlive.com. This broadcast is brought to you by New Vision Baptist Church, where our mission is guiding people to lives of gospel transformation.